We'll read Psalm 23 in a moment, not quite immediately. We'll use it to kind of transition to just really looking at the text. That'll be the final thing we do on this afternoon. So, so far we have geared up. We've made our battle plan. We have loaded weapons. We've assaulted the enemy with interpretation, information, and meditation. And now this is uh, the whole point. We get the spoils of war. We get the benefit. And so I'd like to talk about evaluation presentation and meditation but this time we're going to go in a slightly different order and uh, your notes are very brief for this session not necessary for you to have a lot I'm going to talk about evaluating your study and I'm going to go through putting all of our study together in my own evaluation of my study of Psalm 23 and I'll teach through Psalm 23 and then our meditation will be very brief it'll just be about this whole weekend really So first of all, evaluating your study. This is an important final step because it helps you look retrospectively, looking back at what you've done, what it's done for you, and how to use it. And so this is really where you're you're trying to make this as as useful as you can. And here's some ways to evaluate. First of all, you review all your meditations. Just in our last three sessions, here's what we've accomplished in Psalm 23. We have given you 76 reasonable and logical implications, 57 self-examination questions, 46 personal applications, and nine written prayers. And that's just three times through this text. It's literally an endless amount of, of material to meditate on. 188 meditations on Psalm 23. That's the result of study, not the result of just reading the text. And so that you can see the clear difference between just saying, well, let me read a verse and think about it for a minute and studying it deeply. The second way to evaluate is to prayerfully evaluate what the Lord is doing in your life, heart, and mind through this study. My guess is, and I guess based on experience, that you will see themes of sanctification bubbling to the surface over and over again in your life and you'll be able to identify them. And I would urge you to consider writing, not from your notes, but just from your heart, what the Lord is doing. You might be surprised at the several pages of notes that you can bring back from your mind, from your heart. And thank the Lord and ask Him to continue this work. And then a third way to evaluate is consider options for presentation. By the time you finish a study at this depth, you're going to be dying to share this with somebody. And if you're not, I don't know what to tell you. I guess just start another one. But um, think about how to organize it. How do you want to organize your study? There's, there's lots of ways to do that. Who do you want to present it to? To your spouse, to other believers, to, to your children, to your grandchildren? Pray for opportunities. You want to do this in writing? Do you want to do it in person? you want to write it like a book chapter? you want to write it like presentation notes? A member of my family, an older member of our family, a number of years ago, spent a long time meditating through the entire book of Romans and put it together in a booklet that was given to all of our families. Very meaningful, very helpful. And the last way to evaluate really is more forward-looking. Plan your next study. Repeat the process and make it a lifestyle. Some of you will finish a study start to finish in one month. Others of you will take three or four months. Whatever your pace is, if you make it a lifestyle, it will absolutely change you. So what I want to do now is put this all together 
Here's how I've chosen to put our study in Psalm 23 together. It's uh, little, if anything, I'm about to share with you is new information to you, but it's packaged and it's organized. And so to make kind of a clean beginning, let's read Psalm 23 one final time together. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Have you ever thought about where suffering happens? Where does all suffering basically happen? Is it in California? Is it in uh, the United States? Where, where does it happen? It happens in your mind. It happens in your heart. That's where all suffering is. It's not so much circumstances themselves that bring trauma and agony. It's what you think about those circumstances. That's what brings the trauma and the difficulty. And to be fair, suffering rarely is ever planned. Suddenly, expected agony comes abruptly to your life and it becomes your all-consuming reality. This can literally happen in a matter of seconds. A marriage that's falling apart despite your best efforts. Waking up one day to realize that the pain medication you got while you were in the hospital is now an addiction. Feeling perfectly fine one day and waking up in ICU the next and not even remembering why. A diagnosis that means massive and expensive treatment and a doctor telling you the next year of your life is dealing with this. That's what it's going to be. A child who's grown up to be exactly the opposite of what you hoped and dreamed for. And that's just in your personal life. That doesn't even count the spiritual pressure we feel living in a world that hates Christ and belittles Christians and seems to be a world that's just headed for a cliff and we just don't want to be on it when it goes off. And so for us as Christians, the the question then is, how does my faith impact trials and suffering? How, How am I going to be different? How am I not going to be fearful? How does my salvation in Christ intersect with cancer or with my unfaithful spouse, or my wayward child, or my shattered dreams, or stressful relationships, all the things you can possibly think of. Well, the short answer is that the one who's received the free gift of salvation given by Christ's death on the cross, you have resources. You have resources from God who calls Himself your shepherd. And He promises to provide you all the comfort, all the assurance, all the consolation that you need. And Psalm 23 provides this for you. This is the most famous of all the Psalms. It was penned by none other than King David, the glorious, true first king of Israel. Saul was a false start. David was the true king of Israel. And it has perhaps the most famous line in all the Old Testament, memorably beginning, the Lord is my shepherd. Legacy standard has uh, been a little more precise. Yahweh is my shepherd, but we all grew up with the Lord is my shepherd. We all know, and we all acknowledge that since we're blessed with the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, we can read the Lord Jesus Christ is my shepherd. 
But for King David, he was writing generally of God. We understand the greater inspiration of his text. We understand, looking at the fullness of Scripture, that Jesus says of himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. 1 Peter 5, 4, he's the great shepherd, or the chief shepherd, rather. And Prophetically, the Old Testament prophet Micah says that one would be born in Bethlehem and, quote, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And I would enjoy very much preaching a wonderful message on Christ as the shepherd of Psalm 23. That would be very legitimate for us to do since Psalm 23 is part of the three-part psalm series in Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. In Psalm 22, Christ is the suffering servant who was crucified. In verse 16, they pierced my hands and feet. In Psalm 23, Christ is the shepherd who protects his people. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in Psalm 24, Christ is the glorious returning king who comes in glory. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Psalm 24, 7. Psalm 22 is written as a time in the past. Written in the past tense. Psalm 23, the present moment for the reader at this moment. Psalm 24, a time in the future that we look forward to the coming of the king. And each of the Psalms has a symbol embedded with it. Psalm 22, the, the cross. Psalm 23, the crook, the shepherd's crook. And Psalm 24, the crown of the king. And so we could look at Jesus Christ very clearly. But since we're looking more closely at just at Psalm 23, the purpose of Psalm 23 is to give comfort from the riches of God, and it also serves as a mirror for us, a, a reflection of how God deals with His children in dire need, when you need reassurance, when you need relief. My experience with Christians who think that they're prepared for trials, when one hits, all of a sudden they sometimes go blank. And they're like, I I can't remember anything. I I don't remember what I'm supposed to do. So Psalm 23 is your preparation for when that moment hits. Because we don't schedule tragedy. We don't put trials on our calendar. None of you has ever said to your wife, Honey, could you uh, look at your calendar? I think November would be a good time for a stroke. And Should we schedule it before Thanksgiving to get it over with? Or should we wait till after the turkey sandwiches are done? Well, the most agonizing trials, the reason they're agonizing is because they're sudden. You didn't plan for them. They're unexpected. And you can be paralyzed with fear or dread or distress or grief. You don't know which way to go, but you can't stay where you are. And you might say, as some church members have said to me in, in a moment of transparency, but I don't want to have cancer. But I don't want to die yet. But I don't want to have an unfaithful spouse I don't want that. But you don't have a choice. It's an affliction which, like it or not, is part of your life. So what do you need? Well, at that moment, you have three needs. You have three basic needs. You need a restful peace right now. You need an appointed pathway forward And you need a future promise that you can cling to. You need a restful peace right now. You need an appointed path forward. And you need a future promise that you can cling to. A restful peace, an appointed path, a future promise. So let's just walk through those using Psalm 23. Let's start with the restful peace. 
We might even think about Psalm 23 really as, as two different songs or one song with two verses. The song of a sheep under the loving protection of a shepherd and the song of a guest under the loving protection of his host. And these represent two different locations, the wilderness and the valley of the shadow of death. The shepherd protects in the wilderness and the host prepares a meal even in the midst of the spiritual danger in the valley. Now, King David, the beloved king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, was a wonderful man, but he was a man with enemies. A man who at times was literally hunted by those who hated him. And so he begins, Yahweh is my shepherd. And he uses right at the beginning, Yahweh, God's covenant name. And it evokes to the original reader, the Old Testament saint, a rich image of the fact that God is a covenant-keeping, protecting God. That he protects the faithful. He's the God who says of himself in Exodus 34, 6, as he passed by Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Yahweh is my shepherd, David says. People of God in David's day were well acquainted with shepherds. Almost all of them were shepherds. And of course, David himself, long before he shepherded God's people as the king of Israel, shepherded regular old sheep in the hills around Bethlehem. And think about this. It's almost shocking to find the words Yahweh and shepherd in Hebrew right next to each other. It it just seems like a a paradox. David's saying that the sovereign ruler of the universe has taken up the lowly task of shepherding him. Those those can't be more uh, opposite concepts. That the creator of the ends of the earth is down here looking to his every need, to his every necessity, And he says, as a result of the fact that Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's just a declaration that God the shepherd is providing for me as his sheep restful peace. And so we get these picturesque images of peacefulness and tranquility, such as he makes me lie down in green pastures. David knew sheep. If there was anything he knew, he knew sheep. And he knows that sheep are naturally fearful And they won't lie down unless they're convinced that it's safe to do so. If you don't believe me, go try to get a sheep to to lie down when it doesn't want to. This isn't a picture of a shepherd sitting on the sheep to make it lie down. It's a picture of a shepherd soothing and comforting the sheep so that they're able to lie down. They're relaxed. They're comforted. When King David in later years was fighting off a government takeover by his own son Absalom, he wrote of the peace that God gave him. In Psalm 4.8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. And not just to lie down anywhere, but in green pastures, rich meadows that are plenty of, have plenty of provision. There's no need to keep searching for sustenance. They've arrived. They're right where need, they need to be. And as the sheep of God's pasture lie down in these soft green grasses here, fully provided for, fully sustained, the sheep notice the barely noticeable, quiet waters. Waters so quiet that you can't hear them. They're perfectly still. Not a scary rushing river, but just quiet waters. It literally Hebrew means waters that are resting. Waters at rest. Serene waters that are safe and cool and refreshing and Now that you're lying down in the green pastures 
and you're beside waters at rest. The shepherd restores your soul. The concept of restoring your soul, it can be used to speak of spiritual salvation. In Hosea 4 and Joel 2, this Hebrew phrase means bring to repentance or bring to conversion. But it also speaks of the spiritual refreshment and revitalization of the believer. In Psalm 19.7, the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. So this is the idea of returning to a place of peace you once knew. It's regaining your spiritual equilibrium. It's recapturing your trust in the Lord. And so the opening messages, the opening message of this psalm is very clear. That God gives perfect respite, perfect provision, doesn't matter what's happening outside the beautiful green valley of peace where the quiet waters are. In this place, in the pasture, and it's green with the quiet waters where he restores your soul. It's just you and your shepherd. No one else. And this place of restful peace is available anytime, all the time. The gateway to this valley is never closed. The grass is always green. The waters are always quiet. The shepherd is always there. He's always there. Right in the middle of your crisis or whatever is the most troubling to you, you may simply decide it's time to go back to the green pastures, to the quiet waters. It's time to be there. It's always accessible. So your first need is a restful peace. But you have a second need, and that's an appointed path. And the pointed path, you need to know there's a way out. It's scary, it's painful, it's daunting. You don't want to walk through this situation, but you, you really have no choice. The second half of verse 3, he guides me in the paths of righteousness. It can mean righteous in the sense of uprightness and, and worthiness, but the context isn't so much righteous behavior. It can also mean simply and elegantly the right path, the accurate path, the correct path, the straight path. As a matter of fact, this is literally a word that means the wagon tracks, the wagon tracks of righteousness. Why is that important? An alert shepherd who's trying to guide his sheep back home and maybe uh, is trying to find the way, an alert shepherd keeps to those wagon tracks because they lead home. The wagon tracks were the way to safety. This makes us think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Now, this is often misunderstood. This doesn't mean that God will make your path easy. That's not what straight means. It means He'll make your path acceptable. That you're okay with it. You're good with it. It's manageable. God will make your path one that you submissively receive from His hand. And why does He do it? For His name's sake. It's for His glory's sake. It's for His reputation, for His fame. Or if I could put it this way, what kind of God would God be if He couldn't get you through some little trivial difficulty like cancer or dying or something like that? That's nothing in comparison with creating the heavens and the earth or nothing in comparison with Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. The path that God is leading you on is for His glory. And that's a, that's a way you pray, Lord, the path I'm on does not feel good, but may it lead to Your glory. For His honor, for His fame. And so you embrace it as such. And I, I believe with all of my heart, and I believe the Apostle Paul experienced this, that you can flip a switch 
in your heart and in your mind to where this path is pleasant and it's elegant and it's righteous because it's God's chosen path. It is the path that leads to His fame and His glory and that you get to be a tool for those glorious aspects of God's honor. Of course, the question is, but what if I don't like my path? What if it's dark? What if it's treacherous? What if it's like out of a million things I'm willing to go through, it's the one that's at the top of my list of fears? What if it's dark? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In verses 1 through 3, David is speaking about God, his shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness, right paths. He's speaking to us. He's telling us the riches of the shepherd. But now it gets intensely personal. Once David turns to face the valley of the shadow of death, now David speaks directly to the shepherd. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He goes from talking about God to talking to God. I guess a reasonable question to ask is, who is leading me into the valley of the shadow of death? The correct theological answer is, God is. Don't say God allowed this trial. God caused this trial. Don't say God allowed me to go down this path. God caused you to go down that path. Lamentations 3.38, everything good and all calamity comes from the mouth of God. Oh, wait a minute, that challenges my theology. Well, too bad. That's what the Bible says. It all comes from Him. And it may be the valley of the shadow of death, but it's the right path. And what is the shadow of death? It's just, it's, we would say it's a scary place. It's the last place I want to be. It's the last thing I want to have happen to me. And this fits the shepherd metaphor. Shepherds at times would have to lead their sheep through these shadowed ravines and riverbeds. In fact, Israel is filled with these stony mountainsides with hidden caves and canyons, and that's where the wild beasts would hide where? In the shadows. The area around Bethlehem where David cut his teeth as a shepherd is no exception to this. All kinds of little ravines like that. And so God leads us through this appointed path that seems like it's dangerous, seems like it's difficult. It's not the path you would have chosen, but your ever-growing profound trust in the Lord says, the valley of the shadow of death is okay. Why? Because I have with me the light of the world. That when God is with you, there's actually no darkness. 1 John 1 tells us that in God there is no darkness at all. And so what's the result? I fear no evil. This isn't a, this isn't a, a question. Well, should I fear any evil? No, it's a declaration. I, f- I will fear no evil. Nothing can harm me outside God's control. And he gives the reason, for you are with me. The very presence of God is the reason you have no fears whatsoever. This is exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 46. One, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I love this picture. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod, the club to strike a wild animal that would harm the sheep. The staff, the shepherd's crook to keep the sheep on the right path. This proves to us that 
Yahweh is our shepherd. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He's not far away. When you pray, you need not think of him as universes away. You, you may think of him as right here with you in this moment. He's intimately involved in the moment-to-moment daily details of everything that's happening to you. He's clubbing back that which he will not allow to harm you. And he's using his staff to keep you precisely where he would have you be on the appointed path. Or we might say it like this. Your big stick and your little stick, they comfort me. The great 19th century Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren wrote this. He said, no wise forward look can ignore the possibility of many sorrows and the certainty of some. The road will not always be bright and smooth, but will sometimes plunge down into grim canyons where no sunbeams reach. But even that anticipation may be calm. Thou art with me is enough. He who guides into the canyon will guide through it. It is not a dead end, but it opens out on shining meadows where there is greener pasture. In your time of trouble, you need a restful peace. You need an appointed path. Legitimate question. What if my appointed path looks like a scary, dark, dead-end canyon that can only end badly? What if that's what it looks like? What if the path leads to tragedy? What if that path leads to debilitating permanent circumstances? What if that path leads to my death? Or maybe worse for us, what if that path leads to the death of somebody I love? That's where the victory of being in Christ sparkles like shining armor. That's where the believer runs like the wind. That's where we sing like an angel. That's where Isaiah's great promise he gave to the captive nation of Israel comes really bursting out triumphantly. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Because not only does God give you a restful peace and the pointed path, He also gives you a future promise. And this future promise, this is where the true Christian victory really comes into play. That you can look down this dark path and you can almost objectively and almost as a curious outsider go, oh, interesting, that ends in a horrible, fiery accident in which I die after two years of rehab. And then I die. The true victory comes in being able to objectively look down that path and say, well, isn't that interesting? Why? Because you know what's past it. You have a future promise. It's not just that God can give you calm now. He can. He does. That's part of the purpose of Psalm 23. It's not just that God gives you an appointed path, scary and dark though it may be. It's that even if in the sovereign, mysterious, bigger than I can comprehend plan of God, the worst case scenario comes to pass, you can still have victory because the end of that path is not the end of the story. The story isn't over. And the metaphor switches from God as your shepherd to God as your gracious host. One of the most amazing pictures in all of Scripture. In verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is a present foretaste of a future reality. This is David by faith experiencing what is yet to be. Now, this is obvious to us that it's something a little different than what we're used to. What is he talking about here? In the ancient Near East, if you were the honored guest in the house or the tent of an important and wealthy host, 
that host was culturally obligated to protect you from your enemies as long as you were his guest. You see, this isn't a hasty meal on the battlefield, but this is a calm and secure, leisurely meal under the protective banner of a strong host. Now, it doesn't say here what enemies that David is speaking of, who he's thinking of. It might be human enemies. It might be the memory of wild beasts against which he used to defend his flock. No matter what the enemies are, the picture is clear. They're snarling, they're, they're howling, they're growling all around. And David feasts in the presence of the Lord. And this is so paradoxical. This is so ironic. Outside rages the storm of the enemy, the roars and the rumbles that all seem deadly and seem dangerous. And meanwhile, the host says, may I fill your glass again? Could I give you more steak and shrimp? Could I perhaps show you the dessert tray all while the little string quartet plays in the background? It is the ultimate of Christian ironies that we sup at the table of the king while the enemy rages all around us. This is a picture of being lavishly treated by God. He says, you have anointed my head with oil. Beginning as early as the ancient Egyptians, a host in the ancient Near East would anoint the heads and beards and feet of his guests with pleasantly scented olive oil. It it took the layer of dust from travel off the head. It freshened the one who had journeyed. This is a complete contrast to the dust and dread and danger and distress that's outside. And he says, my cup overflows. There's no great hidden meaning here. This is extravagant treatment and more than you need. I've been in some of your homes and some of you are extravagant hosts. I, we, we leave having to, to wheel ourselves out. That's, that's extravagance. What David's describing is a unique ancient Near Eastern way of treating your guest, and it's a practice still found in parts of the world. In the mid-1800s, a Captain James Wilson wrote a book called Oriental Customs, and he wrote about an experience that he had that was like that of the psalmist. He's in India, and he writes this. I once had this ceremony performed on me in the house of a great and rich Indian, In the presence of a large company, the gentleman of the house poured upon my hands and arms a delightful perfume, put a golden cup in my hands, and poured wine into it until it ran over, assuring me at the same time that it was a great pleasure to him to receive me and that I should find a rich supply of my needs in his house. To eat and to drink at the table provided by the Lord is a recognition of a bond, It's a covenant bond. This is the bond that Jesus spoke of when he promised all who belong to him in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the meal says that. That right in the trouble we feast, feasting in the presence of the Lord, feasting on his word, feasting in prayer, feasting and praising him in song. How about this one? That when you're in trouble, decide I'm going to sing 50 hymns in a row or until my heart is cleansed of my fear feasting on the fellowship of the church, feasting on the certain hope of the future, which is right where David leads us climactically. That's where he ends. In verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. What's goodness? That's a sign of God's favor. It's a sign of God's love, and it follows him. 
What's loving kindness? This is sometimes translated steadfast love. This is love based in covenant relationship that it follows you, that it, you, it won't ever lose you. You'll always have God's goodness, always have God's loving kindness. Or if I could put it this way, your appointed path that seems to be leading toward disaster, we're always looking forward. If you look back for a minute, oh, the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God is just pursuing me wherever I go. What a glorious thought. They pursue. This is in stark contrast to the pursuit of the enemy. God's goodness will pursue me wherever I am. And what's the future hope? And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. It's an interesting word. I will dwell. It actually means to return to dwell. To come back to a place that I'm familiar with. We don't know what situation in David's life prompted the writing of Psalm 23. At the very least, David was anticipating a return to normalcy. I will return to dwell in a long life spent in communion with God. Maybe David was separated from the tabernacle, the formal house of worship. The house of Yahweh is a technical term to refer to any place that God has revealed himself and was worshipped. But it also speaks of the hope of dwelling in heaven with the Lord, an implicit promise of eternal life. Or if we could put this angle on it, remember that Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms and He promised to bring you there. Your future promise is not just that you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever, but the house of Yahweh becomes your house. That's a tremendous shift. You know how glorious it is when you've been traveling to get back to your own bed, your own refrigerator, your own home. 2 Corinthians 5.8 speaks of heaven as being at home with the Lord. If I could put it this way, there's no mystery in being in the house of Yahweh because it's your house and your future home will be more familiar, more restful, more warm than any home, any earthly comfort, any temporal solace you've ever enjoyed on this earth. I've heard lots of jokes and I've told lots of jokes about getting to heaven and having to take the orientation tour. You know, and maybe it takes 500 years. Who knows? But if we're being precise theologically, being at home with the Lord will be more familiar than anything you've ever known. So what does this mean? What does it mean that God will give a restful peace and the pointed path and a future promise? You know what it means? It means bring on the trouble. It can't hurt me. It can't. Psalm 23 is by far the most well-known, most popular portion of Scripture. But it's very important. I mentioned this in an earlier session. It's the most well-known and popular portion of Scripture with non-Christians as well. So it's important that we make a distinction. We have to be reminded that knowing Psalm 23 is not the same as knowing the shepherd. That's not the same. The wrath of God was hurtling towards you and Jesus stepped between you and God's righteousness and He absorbed the full force of the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And if we stop there and say, oh, that's wonderful, that's nice, it's like Psalm 23, but you have to keep reading. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And having purchased his sheep on the cross, the Savior now tenderly shepherds them. Because all the benefits, all the comforts, all the joys, all the consolations, all the solace 
in the time of trouble given to us by Psalm 23, listen carefully, all of that is not available to the one who says the Lord is a shepherd. It is only available to the one who can truly say the Lord is my shepherd. That is not a promise of God to everyone. This is a promise of God only to the one who has repented of sin and turned to Christ. And to say, as Paul says, Christ is in me and I am in Christ. Now the Lord is my shepherd. One last thing. I've alluded to this in our last session, but I want to expand on it just a little bit. I want to point out in greater detail how the Lord Jesus Christ gave a living illustration to prove that he is the shepherd of Psalm 23. When Jesus was on earth, everything he did and said was intentional. There was nothing random about anything he did. And one day, Jesus essentially brought Psalm 23 to life. He wanted those who were listening to him, those who knew Psalm 23 already, that he wanted to be their shepherd. He, he made an offer to be their shepherd. He wanted to give them the free gift of salvation that's only through him. And so he illustrated Psalm 23 in a way that was blindingly obvious, if I could use a, a paradox. All four Gospels record Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus their wives and children. And you all know the story very well. Jesus had just crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and before they even arrived at the shore, a huge crowd had already gathered. Then Jesus began to teach them and and the day grew later and he took five loaves, unleavened bread, just really giant crackers basically, and two fish and he miraculously fed the tens of thousands who were there. But Jesus was doing much more than just feeding them food. He's demonstrating that he would be their savior, he would be their shepherd if they would have him. So let's walk through it. Yahweh is my shepherd. Mark 6.34 records he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I shall not want. John 6.12 records they ate their fill. They had all that they needed. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Next to the quiet Waters of the Sea of Galilee, the, the lapping waters on the shore. Mark 6.39 says, He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. He's illustrating Psalm 23. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. In John 6.35, He told this crowd, I am the bread of life. In verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The restoration of the soul the path of righteousness all the way to the end of life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And the text says he had compassion on them, literally pity in his gut. He gave them comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When Israel was occupied by Rome and ruled by crooked and wicked Jewish leaders, Mark 6.41 says, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven and said a blessing, 
and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He literally lives out Psalm 23. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Mark 6, 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. How do you do that? You start with more. You end with more food than you started with. That's overflowing abundance. And surely goodness and mercy or goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. The very next day, Jesus told the same crowd, the same exact people, I am the bread of life. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is the shepherd of Psalm 23 and He proved it by a living illustration that He would shepherd the lost to salvation and Shepherd the saved to trust in Him in the wilderness and in the valley all the way to the house of Yahweh forever. And I have one final meditation and really all it is is a question for you. Based on this whole weekend, will you change your own life by making a decision to do what you've been trained to do? Will you change your own life to study the Word of God, to meditate deeply and intentionally on the riches of Will you arrange your life, a reserved time, arrange your family dynamics, make a dedicated space, arrange your resources, and make them available to yourself? We all know human nature. If you wait a week, you might do it. You wait a month, you probably won't. You wait a year, you definitely won't. To return to our Puritan friends, Nathaniel Rainey wrote, Little meditating makes lean Christians of little life, little strength, little growth, and little usefulness. John Ball wrote, Meditation is a serious, earnest, purposed musing upon some point of Christian instruction, tending to lead us forward toward the kingdom of heaven and serving our daily strengthening against the flesh, the world, and the devil. And Thomas Watson wrote, let your meditation be reduced to practice. Live out your meditation. Meditation and practice like two sisters must go hand in hand. The end of meditation is practice. A man asked me once, how do I change my family? I just gave you the answer. You change your family by being a man who has a dedicated space in his home and whose children and wife see an open Bible and a notebook and maybe an iPad and some books and resources and they will change as you're changing. Many of your wives are already on this path. Don't let them get ahead of you. You lead the way. You encourage them. Wouldn't it be a great thing if you and your wife said let's each do our separate study for a month and at the end of a month let's share it with each other. My prayer is that every family in our church is transformed by being a family in which dad and mom and husband and wife, every household, no matter the makeup of the household, is transformed because you meditate on the Word of God. I, I really, I can only imagine what a church filled with households like that can accomplish for the, for the king. What church do you think Christ will want to use for His glory? How about a church filled with men like that? That's what I'm praying for. So for me to spend this weekend for you, with you, is an investment in you that we expect to see a great return in the kingdom. That's my prayer. It is 
2.28. If you go to bed at 10 o'clock, that gives you seven and a half hours to make a plan and figure out how before I close my eyes tonight am I going to commit to do this? How am I going to do that? That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for this time that we've had. We ask you, God, to make every man hearing this a man who sets aside the time, the space, and the willingness to spend the rest of his life in the study of God's word, even if it's just a verse at a time. We pray these things for the glory of the shepherd, in whose name we pray, amen.